0: Today's scripture reading comes from John 15, verses 1 through 11. Please open your Bibles and read with me, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. John 15, verse 1 I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken in you. that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full." This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, the New Testament is replete with pictures or analogies to really help us to understand key things. Uh, Last week, for example, we looked at the picture of the church as the bride of Christ. Oh, to be sure, that passage had a lot to say to husbands and wives, and we talked about that, but that passage was pointing us to the glorious relationship, the beautiful intimacy between Christ and His church. If you read the Gospels, you know Jesus is a master of pictures. And Jesus often paints pictures to help us understand the nature of true faith, what it is to really believe in Him, and so you might think of the parable, often referred to as the parable of the soil, of the uh, parable of the sower, which I think better understood would be the parable of the four soils. Now, that parable is instructive to us because when you really understand that parable, what's clear is only one of those four soils is a believer. He's showing us in painful ways that there's ways where there can be some level of connection with Christ, but not really following Him, for it's only that fourth soil type that bears fruit. Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruits. It bears fruit, and it perseveres. Well, this morning, we want to look at another picture, I think a very important picture. It's a picture Jesus paints of abiding in Him being connected to Him like a branch is connected to a vine. And again, this picture is all about showing us what true faith looks like. This this text has a lot in there, and yet this text is really Christianity 101. And so, we want to really dig in, sink our teeth into this, if you're not already there, I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 15. It's a passage that was just read for us. And I'm going to begin by rereading the first three verses. Here Jesus says, I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it might bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So, Jesus begins saying, I am the true vine. And this is one of a number of I am statements that you find in the Gospel of John. this particular statement is very important for our understanding as to how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Israel was often referred to as the vine. In fact, I have several texts there in your sermon outline that you could look at later. But you see that there several places where the Old Testament speaks of Israel as the vine, and instructively, in those Old Testament texts where Israel is the vine, they, they, they speak of Israel's failure to produce good, good fruit, along with the corresponding threat of God's judgment upon the nation. So, it's, it's with this background that Jesus stands before His people and says, I am the true vine. So, He's saying, I'm the one the nation of Israel pointed to. And, and think about this. Israel was God's chosen people, right? And thus, to be a part of the people of God, to be a part of the blessing of God, to be a part of God's covenant with His people, one had to be vitally connected to Israel. Now, Jesus is driving home the reality that if you want to be a part of God's chosen people, if you want to be a part of God's new covenant people, it's all about your connection to Christ. See, with the coming of Christ, God's chosen people are now vitally connected to Jesus, the true vine. So, this is the framework of the picture Jesus is painting. Jesus is the true vine, the one we as believers must be vitally connected to. And he continues with this picture. He says that God the Father is the vine dresser. And as the vine dresser, you see in verse two that God takes away every branch that does not bear fruit. Simply put, those who bear no fruit are are lopped off. And we'll come back to that idea in a minute. As the vine dresser we see that God not only lops off those branches that fail to bear fruit but we also see that he, he prunes or cleanses every fruit-bearing branch in order that it might bear more fruit. I want you to notice in that, everyone gets cut. No exceptions. Those who bear no fruit, lopped off completely. And again, we'll come back to that, but suffice it to say, that's not good. Those who do bear fruit are pruned. Now, this word prune can be translated to prune or cleanse. It's the same word used in the next verse. And, and, and really, it's, it's the context to where you, you prune or cleanse. And, and you think about it, right? Pruning really is a cleansing. It's a cleansing out of the old dead branches in order to make room for others to grow. So, God prunes or cleanses every branch that bears fruit, every believer. No one's exempt. I think it's worth pausing to consider some of the implications, right, because this is saying if you're a believer, you will be pruned. This pruning can, of course, take on a number of different looks. It can be the conviction of sin as you read the Scriptures in your own devotions. It can be the conviction of sin as you sit under the Word of God being preached. It can be through a brother or sister lovingly coming alongside of you, pointing out a blind spot can be walking through all sorts of different trials, right? Difficult days, difficult seasons that God's going to use in your life for His good. Whatever form it takes, Jesus is teaching us that God's reason for such pruning is always purposeful. And don't miss the fact that God prunes us for the very purpose that we might bear more fruit. Nevertheless, this process can be a painful one. And thus, understanding that the verb tense in the original shows that this is a recurring process is something we need to have our heads around. Because for believers, we will never quote unquote arrive and no longer need pruning. This is something that God in His kindness is going to do in our lives throughout, pruning us, growing us to make us more useful for His kingdom purposes. And so, in verse 2, we read that God prunes and cleanses those who bear fruit. But then in verse 3, notice that He says, you're already clean. And I said it a second ago, it's the same word. So, He's basically saying, you've already been pruned. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So I think a couple of questions need to be addressed here. First, what does Jesus mean when He says, you're already clean? You've already been pruned because of the Word I've spoken to you. And second, how does verse 2 fit with verse 3? So let's start with the first one. What does He mean? Here I would argue that when Jesus tells the eleven they are already clean because of the Word He's spoken to them, He's telling them, you're already believers. You've already been declared righteous because of your faith in Jesus' Word that He's been speaking to them. Now, there's a lot we could say here because, in short, this is a difficult discussion because of the very unique place that the disciples stand in salvation history because the cross hasn't yet come. Pentecost hasn't yet come. They've not yet been baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, in a very true sense, they are not, at that point when He's talking to them, quote-unquote, born-again Christians, in the same sense that we are on this side of the cross, this side of Pentecost. Nevertheless, they stand in a long line of Old Testament saints. You could say the disciples are actually the last of the Old Testament saints before Pentecost. So, you think about them standing in line with those like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, John the Baptist, who are declared righteous like Abraham. Remember how Genesis speaks of Abraham's faith, Paul picks up on that in Romans. So, they're declared righteous as a result of their faith in the promise, which is ultimately what? The the promise of Christ. So, even though they saw it dimly, their faith is in Christ, and thus they're declared righteous like us. So, I I take that as that's what Jesus is saying when He says they're already clean. So, then how does that mesh with what He says in verse 2, where there's this continual cleaning Pruning that happens. And we looked at this last week, right? The the Bible speaks like this all the time. Last week, we talked about the fact that, you know, you might think of the words like sanctification or justification. These words can speak in terms of the past, present, and the future. We can speak of we were sanctified, we've been sanctified right in the past. Paul talks like this. We're being sanctified. And we will finally be sanctified on that last day. Same thing with justification. The New Testament uses those words like that. It's our systematic theological categories that make us think it's so neat and tidy, but, it, but it's really not. Those ideas are useful, but the words themselves can be used past, present, future. And I think along the same lines is what's going on here. So that when we come to Christ, when we're engrafted into the vine, we are pruned, we're cleansed in that once-for-all sense. And yet, taken together with verse 2, we know that as believers, we experience this ongoing pruning, this ongoing cleansing done by the Father to enable us to be more useful. Okay, so verses 1 through 3 tell us Jesus is the vine, Father's the vine dresser, we're cleansed on account of the Word, and yet the Father continues to cleanse us so that we can bear more fruit, And now in verses 4 through 5, we see how we're able to bear such fruit, or we might say we read of the power source that brings about such fruit. Look at verses 4 through 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here we see that if you're a believer, you abide. You remain. You persevere in Christ. And Christ abides, remains, perseveres in with you. Again, Jesus is painting this picture of true faith. For the Christian, there is an interconnectedness with Christ. All of our lives are wrapped up with Jesus, and this connection is not one that peters out. It, it continues. It, it perseveres. It's not one that starts hot and grows cold. It's not one that's loosely affiliated. No, it's, it's vibrant. It's interconnected. It's ongoing. I want you to notice that in verse 4, this abiding is actually a command. We're commanded to abide in Jesus. We're commanded to do something that we're already doing. As Christians, we do abide in Christ, and we're commanded here, keep abiding in Christ. That's not unlike the commands to believe, right? Just one chapter earlier in John 14:1, he tells those who are already believing, believe in God, believe also in me. Here I want you to notice that this command has a condition that's attached. There's a few ways that you can take the and I and you statement, but contextually it's almost certainly best to take it as a condition. You abide in Christ and He will abide in you. Uh, The emphasis in Jesus' whole teaching of this vine branches imagery is on human responsibility. That's what He's emphasizing here. Now don't take that the wrong way. Uh, the point is not that salvation ultimately hinges on us. It, it's just that there's times where Jesus and New Testament writers emphasize one aspect over another, and here he's clearly emphasizing human responsibility. If you were to drop down a few verses to verse 16, we'd be reminded he does the choosing. Didn't, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He does the choosing. Salvation's all of God. But the emphasis here is a command: abide, abide. And if and when we do abide, we're assured Jesus abides with us. If we don't abide, we're told we are completely and utterly impotent to do anything of any lasting value. And the picture Jesus is painting is extremely helpful, isn't it, as we consider what this abiding looks like. And consider for a moment the very basic analogy of the necessity of these branches to stay connected to the vine. I mean, if you wanted to start your own vineyard, you wouldn't go to your friend's vineyard and grab a bunch of branches and take them to your place and lay them out and expect to have a bumper crop. Oh, sweet, I'm about to have an awesome vineyard. No. We all know what would happen in, 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 in that scenario. They would dry up, they would die, nothing would grow, and the reason is because you've removed them from the life source. If you pluck a branch off a grapevine, it is not going to grow on its own because it has to remain connected to the main vine. The vine is the life source of the branch. It's where it receives its nutrients and sustenance required to remain alive and to grow and to bear fruit. And friends, this is precisely What Jesus is teaching us. In the very same way that the branch must remain connected to the vine in order to grow, the Christian must remain vitally connected to Christ, the true vine, if we are going to persevere in our faith and produce fruit. For it's clear as we see in verse 4, as the branch cannot produce fruit without abiding in the vine, so too, believer, can produce no fruit unless we're abiding in Christ. In, in fact, the end of verse 5 tells us that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. I'll just let that sink in for a minute. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Now, that's pretty humbling, isn't it? I'm, I, I'm like, oh, I, I can do something. I, I, can, I can find a way to work it out, you know, drive that square peg through a round hole or whatever it is. You see, far too often we think way too highly of ourselves. Even even the mere thought that we don't have time or we don't really need to spend time with Jesus, spend time in His Word, spend time in church, it's our own prideful delusion. When we think about the work Jesus has called us to, the role He's given us in the kingdom, we must remember we can't do this on our own. If we want to see real kingdom growth in our own lives, if we want to play a role in real kingdom growth, in the lives of others. It only happens through abiding in Jesus, for apart from Him, we can do nothing. And verses 6 through 8 actually take this thought to the next level. Here we see a very stark contrast between the end result of those who abide and those who don't. Look at verses 6 through 8. verse 6, we have a strong warning of what happens to those who do not abide in Christ. And it's clear that just as the branch that does not remain connected to the vine will dry up and die, so too those who don't abide in Christ will dry up, and Jesus says, be cast into the fire and burned. And when Jesus speaks like that, He's always speaking in terms of burning in hell, in eternal judgment. So, what do we make of such a verse? Uh, Because it's clear Jesus is speaking to His disciples here. He's speaking to those that we said are already clean, and He's speaking to believers. We we know this to be true. We're in the farewell discourse. Judas is gone. There's only 11 there. Verse 2, He says, "...every branch in me," Verse 3, you're already clean. And yet He gives them this warning that if anyone does not abide, they will dry up and be cast into the fire. So, what are we to make of this verse? Is Jesus teaching that genuine believers can fall away from the faith? This is a favorite text of our Arminian friends who would argue for that. I don't think that's what it's saying at all. Uh, What makes this question so challenging for the interpreter are the many unconditional promises in John's Gospel, where it's abundantly evident that those who are genuine believers will never fall away from the faith. Just think about a promise like John 10, verse 27 to 30. There Jesus says, "'My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, are we forced to say that Jesus can at one moment give a glorious, unconditional promise like that, that He will preserve all those who are His, and then at the next moment contradict Himself and say that genuine believers can lose their salvation? See, I think before answering our question, we have to consider the fact that perhaps the most difficult issue for us proposing an answer and how we reconcile promise and warning comes from a faulty view of conversion. See, far too often in 21st century American evangelicalism, a person walks an aisle, prays a prayer, is baptized. And then hailed as a Christian and assured that they can never, ever lose their salvation regardless as to whether or not they were ever saved, whether or not there was ever any evidences of God's grace in their life, any fruit, if you will. But see, this kind of false assurance stands far away from the biblical witness of conversion and the perseverance that we see. Throughout the New Testament, we find places where men and women are depicted as having some degree of connection with Jesus some degree of connection with the Christian church, and yet by failing to persevere, by failing to bear fruit, failing to abide, they actually testify that the life-changing power of God has never pulsated within them. It's clear in Scripture that there will be many who look like Christians for at least a period of time, but will fall away from the faith, demonstrating that they were never believers to begin with. And there's a number of texts we could go to here, but we don't have to leave John's writings. If we were to flip over to 1 John, you don't need to flip there. You might write this verse down. Super helpful here. 1 John 2.19, John uses very precise language. He says, listen close, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. You see what he's doing. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. He says, for if they had been of us, they would have remained. That's the same word as John 15. They would have abided. They would have persevered with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. So so those who walk away from Christ, or using the language of our passage in John 15, those who fail to abide demonstrate not that they've lost their salvation, but that they were never believers to begin with. See, a big Part of our problem is a watered-down view of conversion and what it is to be a Christian. So, let's go back to the question I asked a minute ago. Do the unconditional promises we just read, like one we just read, contradict a warning like what you see in verse 6? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. So, how then do we understand these two? And and what's important is when we have a proper understanding of biblical theology, and that the Bible teaches that those who are truly God's people will never fall away, and that those who do fall away ultimately demonstrate they were never believers to begin with, we should then understand such a warning as a help in understanding having a category for those who fall away, and, and very importantly one of God's very means to preserve those who are truly His. In, in that sense, you might say one function of a biblical warning is to serve like a road sign when we're out on the road. Now, think about what a road sign is there for. Is it not to protect you, to help you get home safe? So, if I'm driving along and I see a yield sign, I don't just hit the gas and blow right through it, right? If I do, I might not get home safe. Likewise, if I'm driving along and I see a sign that says bridge may be icy, and it's January, and it's had some precipitation, I'm probably going to slow down, drive across that bridge very carefully. See, in that sense, these signs are put out on the road to help us to get home. And in a very similar sense, biblical warnings are strewn throughout the Bible to help us get home. Remember, believers are pilgrims. We're on a journey toward heaven. I love John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We're on a journey to the celestial city, and there are countless things along the way that would want to shipwreck our faith. And in the providence of God, He uses warnings as one of His means to protect, to preserve His people, to help them stay on the narrow road. Therefore, When I, as a Christian, come across a warning like the one I see in verse 6, I don't want to just blow right by it. I want to take it very seriously. I I, I want to be reminded I, I need to stay connected to Jesus. I can't do this on my own. See, this is a warning that God ordained to have in the Bible for me today, and so I take it seriously. Perhaps I even fall to my knees and pray fervently. God, give me the grace to abide There's countless things out there bidding to pull me away, help me abide. And see, at the end of the day, it's those who are truly God's children who will heed these warnings and abide in Christ and persevere to the end. And it's those who do not heed the warnings who actually demonstrate that they were never genuine to begin with and suffer the consequence described here in the text. Jesus says those who do not abide will be thrown away as a branch, dried up, gathered, and cast into the fires of hell, okay? So negatively, if we don't abide in Christ, we demonstrate a lack of true saving faith and find ourselves in judgment. On the other end of the spectrum, beautifully, gloriously, verses 7 through 8, we see four positive results of abiding. One answered prayer. Two, God being glorified. Three, we bear much fruit. And four, the demonstration that we are in fact true disciples. He says, if you abide in Christ and His words abide in you. So we're now, we're reading His Word consistently. We're meditating on His Word. We're applying His Word and living it. Then He says that we can ask whatever we wish and it will be done for us. And this, by the way, fits quite well with Jesus' other teaching on Prayer where he tells us to pray in His will, right, because it's the one who's abiding in Christ, whose words are abiding in Him, that's going to be most likely to pray in the will of God. He also says that the one who's abiding will bear much fruit. It's when we're abiding in Christ, when when His words are abiding in us, that we're bearing genuine fruit for the kingdom. And, And this fruit in the context of John 15 can't simply be limited to any one thing, in context, it almost certainly includes answered prayer, joy, a robust love for the brethren that you'd see if we kept going a little further in this text, a bold witness for the gospel, even in the midst of persecution that results in more fruit that will abide. That said, as we abide in Christ and His Word abides in us, as our prayers are answered and as we're bearing genuine fruit for the kingdom, we prove, he says, we, we demonstrate to be genuine disciples. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 7. You will know them by their what? By their their fruit. Finally, in all of this, verse 8, we're told that God is glorified. God receives all the glory when we're abiding in His Son. God receives all the glory when we're bearing fruit. God receives all the glory when others take notice of His work in us. So, church, we want to grow in abiding like that. Now, I do think we need to pause for a moment because these verses take us back where we started. These verses show us that abiding is just faith. Abiding is basic Christianity. You either abide and bear fruit or you don't abide, bear no fruit ended up in hell. Did you see what Jesus is doing? He's he's teaching us, and this is so important, on the nature of true faith. And once again, He only gives two categories. That's different than us, and we need to keep that in mind. We have a lot of different categories, don't we? You hear them all the time. Oh, she's a believer, but he's on fire for Jesus. He's a believer, but she's really passionate in her faith. With Jesus, there's two categories, those who believe and those who don't. Those who believe abide in Christ and bear fruit. Those who don't bear fruit don't believe. See, Jesus wants us to embrace the reality that following Him is all-encompassing. This is why abiding is such a helpful picture of true faith. So, let me just pause and say, perhaps you're here this morning, and you side with Jesus, right? On the grand scheme of things, if somebody were to ask you, what's your religion? You'd say, well, I know I'm not a Muslim, I know I'm not a Hindu, and I most closely align with Jesus. I'm, I'm a Christian. But consider the reality Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. And I just want to ask you, friend, have you come to that place where you've truly recognized your sin? You've come to that place where you've truly recognized your rebellion against God and that what you really deserve is His wrath. And then come to recognize how amazing Jesus is the amazing work that He actually accomplished, and the joy it is to really follow Him, not just to say, I'm a Christian, but it's sort of pushed out to the margins of your life. Friend, I don't know where you are, but if you're outside of Christ, I would plead with you, look to Jesus today, trust in Him, confess your sin, confess your need for a Savior, and believe on Christ. We need to keep going because we've seen that abiding is vital. And verses 9 through 11 help us understand this a little bit more concretely. Look at verses 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Here again, we're commanded to abide in Jesus, though this time we're commanded to abide in Jesus' love. And in verses 9 through 10, we see that this is actually vital to our understanding of the whole section. See, so you see, John 15 is often misread so that the idea of abiding is something that's super spiritual. Higher life, you're a Christian, but then you're an abiding Christian. It can sometimes be something mystical, this indefinable experience. But when we put the pieces of this text together, we actually see that it's practical and tangible. Now, we'll follow the flow of thought in verses 9 through 10. Jesus loves us as the Father loved Him. We are to abide in Jesus' love the way he abides in the Father's love. And Jesus says in verse 10 that he abides in the Father's love by keeping his commandments. And thus we abide in Christ's love by keeping his commandments. See, Jesus is telling us, follow my lead. We're actually to abide in his love the way he abides in the Father's love. And he tells us he abides in the Father's love by obeying all the Father commands. So don't miss this. Jesus is showing us this clear link. Between abiding and obedience. That's why I said these two verses are so helpful. Jesus takes something that could seem abstract, this idea of abiding, and He makes it concrete. He did the same thing with love, by the way, if we would have been going all the way through the gospel of John. In John 14, 15, He says, if you love Me… You'll keep my commandments, right? It's not if you love me, you'll have these pitter-patter of the heart. No, if you love me, you'll, you'll keep my commandments. So to hear those who abide in Jesus' love, keep His commandments. So on a very, very practical front, we see how abiding in Christ is intimately wrapped up with our reading of Scripture. You say, how'd you get there? Well, remember, set up in verse 7, that His words must abide in us. And here we're told to abide in His love, keeping His commandments. And of course, we know that His commands are found in His Word. See, abiding in Christ is not some undefinable mystical experience. The text doesn't allow for that. And to be sure, there's a part of that that is spiritual, that's, that's hard to understand, and that the Holy Spirit, right, indwells us. He empowers us to live for Him and to honor Him. You can see that in chapter 14. But we mustn't miss that abiding in Christ is also very concrete. Abiding in Christ is nothing short of true faith in Christ. And we believe, and we keep on believing. We abide. We spend time in His Word, and His Word abides in us, and we obey His Word. I like how Sinclair puts it so simply in his book, In Christ Alone. He says, quote, In a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing His Word to fill our minds, Direct our wills and transform our affections. In other words, our relationship to Christ is intimately connected to what we do with our Bibles. End quote. Here's the thing. Jesus goes on to tell us this whole abiding relationship is full of great joy and delight for the believer. In verse 11, we see the reason we're supposed to abide in Christ is not because God is some cosmic killjoy who doesn't want you to go do the things that the world says that are a lot of fun. No, because He wants us to experience the joy that He has for us. Look at verse 11 again. We'll wrap up on this. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full It's a glorious promise. Here we read that we're to abide in Christ, to be vitally connected to Him for our own joy. More specifically, so that His joy, think about this, His joy, you know the second person of the Trinity is full of joy, so that His joy may be in us, and thus our joy may be full. This joy Jesus is promising those who abide is not merely the situational joy or happiness we often think of. It's not to say that we can't take joy in situational things, but but this is going beyond just, I'm excited because I got something new, right? If we had time to proceed down deeper into John 15, we'd see that the joy He speaks of is possible even in the midst of great persecution and suffering. Our faith in Jesus, our abiding in Him, brings about answered prayer, brings glory to God, and produces an immense joy in our lives. Again, abiding in Christ is all-consuming. And I want to end by sort of trying to put some of the pieces together so we can have a better feel for what this is teaching us about true faith. We said at the beginning, abiding is a picture of believing one of Jesus' pictures, illustrations of what true faith is. In chapter 20, John tells us that he wrote the whole gospel so that we might believe, and by believing we might have life in His name. And Jesus, as He does throughout this gospel, is showing us what this belief looks like, what this faith looks like. And this picture of abiding is so helpful, right? Right? Jesus is the true vine. He's the life source. And we need to be connected to Him and stay connected to Him. And in so doing, we bear the fruit that is expected. And just think for a minute kind of how this works. The Holy Spirit causes us to be born again, right? Think of John 3. He causes us to believe. Jesus abides in us through the Spirit. And empowered by the Spirit, we, we read and we study His Word. And, of course, the Spirit teaches us through that. You see that in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. There's also a new power that comes through this abiding. So, the Spirit leads us not only to understand His Word, but also to obey His Word, a fulfillment of new covenant promises like Ezekiel 36. This obedience is never perfect. That's precisely why there's need for warnings in Scripture even to the people of God. And so let's end with this. If you're a believer, you are abiding in Christ. That's just part and parcel of being a believer. You're abiding right now in Christ. And as a believer, you must keep on abiding in Christ. And to the extent that you're not abiding in Christ, you need to repent and abide. It's analogous to saying, I believe, (laughs) help my unbelief, right? Lord, I believe. I believe the gospel. I believe Christ. Forgive me for my lack of faith in that moment. I'm abiding, Lord. Help me to abide. I'm abiding. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own in that instance. Help me to abide in you. It's the basic fight of faith. And as simple as it might sound, to abide in Christ, we need large doses of what's often referred to as the ordinary means of grace. We don't need the latest self-help book. We don't need the latest whatever book in top 10 list on the Christian circles. We need the ordinary means of grace. We want to read the word, study the word, meditate on the word. We want to be in church sit under the Word being preached, spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ. We want to abide in Christ, and in so doing, glorify Him, bearing much fruit, honoring Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your grace to us. Father, we pray that you would indeed help us to believe, help us to abide, help us to walk the narrow road you've called us to walk. And Father, I pray that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we'd come alongside of each other, help each other along the way. Oh Lord, we pray that you would grow us as the people you've called us to be. We thank you for your promise that you are doing precisely that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We talked in terms of means of God's grace. At this point, we get to engage in another one of these means of God's grace as we turn our attention to the Lord's table. You know, this is a really special moment for us as a church because we get to walk through a picture together. Uh, The picture here, what we do what the church has done since Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed told us to do this is we remember together. We remember together. We confess together by walking through this moment that my only hope in this life and the next is because Christ's body was broken for me. My only hope stand before a holy God. It's because Christ's blood was shed and cleanse me of my sin, past, present, and future. That's what we celebrate when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And let me just say, if you're here this morning and you're not yet trusting in Christ, we would ask you not to engage in this part of the service. Well, we say that because scriptures teach us not to do this in an unworthy manner. And one way that would be an unworthy manner would be to do it because those around you are doing it or because you think that maybe just partaking will make you right with Jesus or whatever. No, this is is a picture of what we already believe. And so if you're not there yet, man, we'd love to talk to you about that. Nothing more important. But for the time being, as those around you partake of this, Maybe just spend some time praying and ask the Lord to show you your need for Jesus. I want to just lead us into a time of reflection, so I'm going to give us a little bit of time of just silence where we can quiet our hearts before the Lord, take time to confess our sin, take time to be reminded of the gospel, what Christ has done for us. of your cup take of the bread first the bread, the little wafer is a symbol of the body of Christ broken for you Christian, take and eat the juice is a symbol of the blood of Christ shed for you take and drink you pray with me as we give thanks to god for the gospel father we thank you for jesus we thank you because you did what we could have never done lord while we were running our own hell-bound race you sent your son jesus whose body was broken for us, whose blood was shed for us, and we thank you. Oh, Father, I pray that you would empower us to live our lives, to glorify you and all we do. We thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.